Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, Pacifica host Garland Nixon on elections, bad news, and why some people do what they call hate listening. They go, I hate Garland Nixon, he's terrible, but why they can't stop listening. Good evening. My name's Garland Nixon. I'm going to do a show. I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk about stuff. People really enjoy this show. Some people hate it. Some people listen because they like it. And some people do what they call hate listening. They listen so they go, I hate that Garland. He's terrible. But why can't I can't stop listening to his show? Well, whatever the case may be. All right. Okay, let's start here. Here's an article. Black church leaders call for halt to all U.S. funding of Israel amid mass genocide. African Methodist Episcopal leader, church leaders call for a halt to all U.S. funding of Israel. They apparently have written a letter, accused Israel of denying Palestinians of access to food, water, and shelter. Their top officials has called for U.S. governments to halt its funding to Israel, citing the deaths of tens of thousands of Palestinians. And they got left a statement, blah, blah, blah. Recently, um, a bunch of black preachers, I think like a, a thousand black preachers, sent a letter to Joe Biden saying the same thing. Hey, this is terrible. This is inhuman. You need to stop. Now, time for me to comment on that. Bad news, brothers and sisters. Real bad news. Black preachers, AME, church people, and everything else. Bad news for you. You are about to find out what I already know. <laughs> you about to find out what I've been saying for the last 10 years, going to be 11th now. They are not going to listen to you. They don't care. You're not part of the decision-making process. Let, now, now think about this for one second. Just for one second. Medicare for all, right? A plurality, above 50% of the American people, all Americans, believe that the government should provide health care for everybody. The government can afford to do it, but they won't. Most Americans would. Roughly 80% of Democrats are in favor of it, but the Democratic leadership ain't. The 20% that answers to the ruling elite say no, and that means no. Oh, between 70 and 80% of America, somewhere around, let's just go with the low, 70% of people in the Democratic Party want to stop the genocide. They want what they say is um, an immediate cease and permanent ceasefire, right? Uh, not happening. The rulership, leadership of the Democratic Party, the answer is no. Black folks especially, bad news for you all. Every four years, they're going to come to your church. They're going to go up in the pulpit. They're going to say, you, you got to vote for us because, you know, point the finger. Trump's over there. McCain, Bob Dole, there's a Republican over there. They're coming to get you. You got to support me. What are you going to get? You're going to get nothing is what you're going to get. Nothing. And four years from now, you're going to get nothing again. And when you come to them and say, you know, Hey, this looks like a genocide. We don't like that. We'd like you to start. You know what the answer is? You got no say in this party. <laughs> the Demo word Democratic Party does not apply to the process. They're not listening to you. Look, look, if 80% of the people want Medicare for all, they can't get that. They want a ceasefire. They can't get that. What can they get? They can get nothing. Zero. I'll go back to something I've said many times on this show. It was highly reported, and Barack Obama never denied it, that in 2020, the Barack Obama said if uh, it be, looks like there's going to be a runaway and Bernie's going to starts to win, I'll have to step in. What was he saying? If the majority of the people in the party want Bernie Sanders, then Obama will have to step in on behalf of the ruling elite and stop it. This is not a democratic process. You have no say. That your vote, you are allowed to vote. The Democratic Party will somewhat fight for black votes because they want you to put them in power. Now, it only goes one way. When you come back to them and say that's a genocide, which you're right, it's evil, which you're right, you should stop, which you're right, the answer is no. No. You're going to learn what I already know. It's what they do. This ain't the first genocide. Native American people, see ya. Black slaves, apartheid. This is the history of the United States that you're seeing. It is right in front of your face now. And you really think that the Democratic Party, the people that they genocided in the past, and I say they, I mean the American ruling elite, that they're going to listen to them today to stop genociding? It's not happening. The question to me is not, and I, I love you, black churches, AME, whoever, I love you. 
Well, I, and the wonderful thing you're doing, going to the Democratic leadership and saying, hey, man, you're in charge. Stop the genocide. You know what my question to you is? What are you going to do when you are awakened to the truth of what Malcolm X said in the early 60s? The early 60s. What did he say? Malcolm X said, look, to black folks then. He said, look. When it comes to all the voting and stuff, you know, white folks break about even with the Republicans and the Democrats. And you come along and make the difference. You come along and you vote for the Democrats and you put them in power. You put them first and they get in power and they give their donors what they want. They give the military industrial. They give big pharma what they want. They give everybody what they want. And if they have a crumb left at the end, they might give you a crumb. You put them first. And they put you last. What did Malcolm X say? Because you're a chump. You are a political chump. So I would simply say to the brothers, the beloved brothers and leaders of the AME, the beloved brothers and the leaders of those who went to the Democratic leadership and wrote that letter with like a thousand preachers and said, do this. I would I would say to you, you don't you've done the right thing. You've done a good, strong Christian thing to ask to stop a genocide, right? You did what you should do. Commendable. The question is, what will you do when you are awakened to the reality that they don't listen to you, that they don't care what you have to say, that the ruling elite gives you a veneer, they give you a fake, uh, a trope of democracy, they lie and they pretend that they care what you think and they want to listen to you so they can get your votes every four years. And at the end of the four years, they're going to scream Trump, 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 Trump. And you're going to come back like crawling to them like a prostitute again. That they're going to give you nothing. You're going to say, will you stop the genocide? They'll say, shut up and get out of my office. Negro, you get nothing. You don't got no say around here. We're not listening to you. See ya. Have a nice day. Don't let the doorknob hit you where the good Lord split you. That's what they're going to tell you. And then in a couple of months, they'll be back in September. Hey. And then you know what they'll do? Then they'll really feel, oh, they got it now. They got the plan. You know, guess what they're going to do? Soon as you like sleep, slump your head a little bit. Well, you know, I don't think it's right. We asked you to stop a genocide and you wouldn't you wouldn't stop a genocide. You know what they're going to say? Hope we got we got you covered, bro. Watch this. And they're going to bring out Obama and Michelle Obama and march him out on the stage and say, look at here. Look at that. You are represented. There's a black face, a beautiful black family. Don't you feel represented? And when you say, well, yeah, that's nice. But would you listen to me? No. That's all you get, my friends. You get symbolism. You get a black face in front of you. And then we say, don't you feel good because we put a black face in front of you. Now shut up and come vote for us. Because look over there, it's Trump. You know, I have a feeling, I may be wrong. I have a feeling that some black folks are starting to wake up. I have a feeling that some some people all over the place are starting to wake up to the reality that they're not part of the decision making process. You see, democracy means that the people are in charge, that the people are in charge of the democratic process, that the people put people in office to represent them, to represent their views, to stand up for what they believe in. When 80 percent of a party says we want something and a leadership says you can't have it. And heaven forbid, black folks, you should go over to your so-called black misleadership class and ask one of them. Have you show me show me where the black congressmen, black governors, black mayors are standing up saying, hey, I got an idea. Uh, perhaps you should listen to the other black folks that are coming in here. with a ceasefire ain't happening. Not going to happen. But the reality is this, that when it comes down to it, the input you get in the system is that you get to vote people in office who are not going to listen to a word you say. See, think about this. What do the politicians do every four years? They go to the black churches. Why do they go to the black churches? Because there's a lot of black people there and they vote. And they, what do they say? They say to the black preacher, can I come to your pulpit? And the black preacher says, sure. And they show up to their pulpit and the black people wave and they say, hey, black folks, we're standing up. Look outside. The Republicans are going to get you. Oh, it's a, and I'm here. Vote for me and I'll set you free. That's what they say. And they go from black church to black church. Vote for me. Look, I'm on your side. We're all brothers. This is a democracy. You got to stand with me. That's what they say. Right. That's what they say. 
And then this happens. And then a thousand black preachers. How many people do they represent? The whole black AME leadership of the church. They come in. How many black folks do these represent? They represent the same people that these people, that the politicians come into their church. But guess what? When it comes down to it, this is a one way power sharing move. Vote for me. Yes. And you vote for them, them and they get in office and you foolishly have an expectation. And at some point it comes along, you wake up and you say, my God, my government is committing a genocide. Oh, but I know what to do. I got a plan. I'm in a democracy. This is easy. I'll we'll all get our the leaders of our church together because we know every four years they're going to come knocking on the door so they can come to the pulpit and they want our vote. So they'll listen to us. And then we'll send our leadership over and they'll say to Joe Biden in the Congressional Black Caucus, the Congressional Women's Caucus, the Congressional Freedom Caucus, the Congressional Practice, blah, 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 blah. And they'll say to them, you know, you guys want our votes and um, we represent a lot of black voters. So we expect you to stop the genocide. And they'll say, get the hell out of my office. Last time I checked, it ain't September. Come back in September. We will make you some promises. You ain't going to keep them. You ain't got nothing, zero, nothing you're going to get. But come back and we'll make some promises. But don't ask us for anything. No, let me change it. You can ask. You ask and ye shall not receive. And now on Ars Express... Detroit poet Robert Hayden touching on worker blues with Those Winter Sundays. Here is a poem that comes directly out of my boyhood in Detroit, and it's called Those Winter Sundays. Sundays, too, my father got up early and put his clothes on in the blue-black cold, then with cracked hands and ached from labor in the weekday weather, made bank fires blaze. No one ever thanked him. I'd wake and hear the cold splintering breaking. When the rooms were warm, he'd call, and slowly I would rise and dress, fearing the chronic angers of that house speaking indifferently to him who had driven out the coal and polished my good shoes as well. What did I know, what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? I think what's tremendous about Those Winter Sundays by Robert Hayden is the way that he captures both his father's affection for him and the silence surrounding it. That's very hard to do. It's hard to say, I know now that he loved me and this is how he showed it. You know, people talk about love languages and this is what you're seeing is him by waking up early in the blue black cold. And, you know, if you've woken up in a house without heat that requires you to start the heat, um, you know what that feels like. You know, it feels real different than pressing a button and you're warm all the time. And I think that that's really, there's something tremendously powerful and generous about that act. And it's an everyday selfless act. You know, there's a tension also between them being able to speak to each other as father and son in this house. And I think before I lost my father, what did I know of love's austere and lonely offices? There's a quality in that of regret uh, but also of reclaiming and revisiting this painful gap that I think Hayden names in a way that no one else does. That last question, I think, just rings me out so many different ways. But he's also, through the precision and through the form, able to make that love legible to us in a way it wasn't to him as a child. And that is a really powerful moment in American poetry, in world poetry, in human life, you know, how do you talk about what you know and then teach someone at the same time, you know, what you didn't know? How do you talk about what you didn't know and then teach someone at the same time? And that's what I think Hayden achieves in 
those winter Sundays. And you've been listening to literary critic Kevin Young on the political and poetic journey of Robert Hayden. And coming up next on Arts Express, environmental disasters like the history of the La Brea Tar Pits may count as problematic issues in progress and not resolving anytime soon, but the sci-fi dystopian dramatic series La Brea has come to an end, with the final episode airing earlier this month. And here to talk about all that and more is the star of La Brea, John Cena. The Puerto Rican Gotham-born actor takes a look back at the three seasons of La Brea, along with starting out with Al Pacino and director Brian De Palma as his mentors in Carlito's Way back in 1993, what it's been like co-starring with Richard Dreyfuss in the upcoming Deep Sea Disaster movie Into the Deep, and memories of portraying not just a real person, but one still alive who has become a lifelong friend since then, Chris Perez, musician and spouse of the late performer Selena, tragically slain by an associate and the subject of the dramatic feature Selena, starring Jennifer Lopez as the late music legend. Now some scenes from Selena, then John Cena talking first about La Brea. It is Salina. Someone found the letter you wrote me on the radio. But they said it read aloud. It's Como LaFleur from Selena, Elos Dinos, which had just skyrocketed to the number one spot. I love you, and I'm very proud of you. He is so cute. You don't think I know who you are? I come from the streets. I know what a bum musician is. I'm not gonna stop seeing him, Dad. I'm not gonna have this in my family. Selena, I'm worried. I will never take anything from Selena. Hi, hello, and welcome to our show. Hey, thanks for having me, Prairie. <laughs> okay. What, okay. can, what can you say or not about the season finale of La Brea? Well, the season finale is really, really packed, packed with all the answers that the fans that have been following, the loyal fans that have been, you know, watching. And uh, I think they'll be satisfied at least with all the answers. And, and it's just got a lot, a lot of action and just the special effects are through the roof. And what was it about the story originally that attracted you to be part of La Brea? Well, I had never really done uh, anything sci-fi, like major sci-fi and and, uh, stuff with green screen. And, uh, you know, it just, and I was coming off of a show called Chicago PD, which is, you know, a, a procedural that was very, very serious. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I was like, hey, I love doing things that are completely opposite of each other. And I just thought, hey, why not? This this sounds like it could be fun. And speaking of which, what can you say about your upcoming movie, Into the Deep, and what you're up to in that film? Yeah, Into the Deep, it's, uh, well, it's about, a, it's a shark movie. Um, <laughs> and what's, what's ironic is we have Richard Dreyfuss is in it who you know from another shark movie called Jaws. So uh, it's kind of like for him, it's kind of coming full circle. Uh, I play the main antagonist in it. It's, uh, again, what drew me to that was uh, this role that I got to play, which was, uh, you know, completely different, again, from, from what I was doing. Uh, so that was, we filmed that in Thailand. Uh, it's got Scout Taylor Tom, Thompson that's in it. Um uh, Scott Taylor Compton, sorry, uh, myself, Richard Dreyfus, and uh, it's directed by Christian Sesma. I, I believe it's coming out around Shark Shark Week, which would be uh-huh. perfect. <laughs> and what was the experience like co-starring with eminent veteran actor Richard Dreyfus in the film? 
Well, I can't give anything away. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, just, <laughs> just as a person. Oh, it's great. It's great. Yeah, I mean, he's, you know, it's, especially when you're doing a film like that and, and you're working with someone that, you know, basically, you know, their, their rise to fame was from a shark movie. So that was uh, kind of surreal. And speaking of which, one of your very first roles was in Carlito's Way. What was it like at the beginning of your acting career, finding yourself in that instant classic with Al Pacino and directed by Brian De Palma? Oh, that was incredible. That was something that I just I learned so much from the both of them. Uh, and Al Pacino was just so gracious. And, you know, here's, he's such a legend, and he was just so welcoming and, and warm. Uh, you know, and, and for me, it was just, I would, even when I didn't have to be on set, I would go to set just to watch him, just to watch how he uh, would go about the scene and how he would get into character. And, and I, I took a lot of that with me and, and put it into my own uh, craft of, of how I go about things. So, And Brian De Palma was just, man, he, he's just, I, I tell you, I learned so much from him as well. So it was, I was truly fortunate to, to work on that. Now, you're especially known as well for portraying Chris Perez in Selena. What are the challenges for you of portraying a real person in a film and one who's still alive and the rewards as well? Yeah, that was, uh, that was I mean, it, 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 was, it was really sad that the movie even had to be made because of mm -hmm. obviously what happened to her. Yeah. Um, but that said, you know, Chris, Chris and I were still friends this day uh and for me it was just really important to be loyal to chris and selena's love and really make sure that that was captured on screen and and jennifer lopez was uh, just a joy to work with and she was absolutely i thought she did an amazing an amazing job uh you know uh so it was it was an incredible time just just one that really lives in my heart and what was it about portraying Chris Perez that you continued to maintain a close relationship with him? Well, we share a lot of, from the first day we met, it's funny, we, we, we sat down to, to talk and we didn't even talk about the business or, or, or you know, anything or, or what was going on. We didn't even, you know, talk about Selena. We, we sat and we just, we talked about our love for heavy metal music. You know, we were big heavy metal fans and he's a Judas Priest fan. I am too. And he, you know, he's Motley Crue and, you know, uh, uh, Iron Maiden. And, you know, we just shared a lot of our, our common interests and uh, talked about stuff like that. So we kind of connected right away with that. And any last word to share with the listeners about La Brea? Well, I want to, you know, the fans are just absolutely incredible. And, and you know, uh, I'm excited. We're all excited for them to see this finale. Uh, it, you know, they, they've they've come along with us on this journey, and we poured everything we had into into this final season. And I'm just excited. I I, I, I want to thank the fans for their continued loyalty and and just you know uh, uh, commitment to watching the show. And I, I just you know, I can't wait for them to see it. And what is it about your character, Sam, that drew you into the production? Well, Sam, there were a lot of things I could, I could relate to. He's a father, and, you know, I'm a father. And, uh, uh, you know, what, what I like about Sam is, his, you know, he's a, he's a positive character, you know, someone who's very relatable, too, because there's, uh, you, know, you know, he's dealt with so many things that so many of our military men and women deal with, and, uh, you know, struggling with some PTSD uh, and trying to balance that. And, you know, he's, he's you know, as, as a doctor, as a father, as a husband. So I think there's a lot of things that were relatable for so many people that, you know, that, that to me, I like, I like playing someone that, that, you know, people are going to be able to look at and say, hey, I can, I can relate to that. So that, that's, that's what drew me to, to playing Dr. Sam. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you so much, John Seda, for calling into the show. You got it. Thank you. And next on Arts Express. Hi, this is the UK desk for Arts Express, and my name is Brett Gregory. Honourable yet horrific Sean Claffey's 2023 documentary, Americond, 
is an economic war film set in the first quarter of 21st century North America. Human casualties who look exactly like you and me litter the hideous housing projects in Florida, the basement apartments buried in New Jersey, and the forgotten farms of Iowa. I'm looking for storage units. Next door yesterday, they, they put my friend out, my neighbor, and they had what I thought was a legal document, you know, to help them, you know, stay. But unfortunately, the sheriffs nor the management company would accept the paperwork. And they, you know, they kicked them out. And I don't want that to happen to me. With this job, I'm not making enough. I tried to apply for a loan through the SBA. That's a nightmare. I tried to apply for the PPP. They denied me for that because it was not the accurate information. I really want to give up because I'm just so tired. I don't know. I don't, I don't sleep much at night. So I just lay there and I think and I think and I think and I think and I can't figure out a way out. And I've always been able to figure a way out and I can't. My kids literally hate me because I can't fix the problems of the world. When I decided to move home several years ago, I looked at my hometown paper for a job for about a month, and the best job I could get is 15 bucks an hour and no benefits. Whether it's a McDonald's or Dollar General or, or whatever, they hire people for 10, 12 bucks an hour, and the profits go out of the district. That's not benefiting our society. That's not benefiting our communities. The economy isn't working for here. It, it benefits these multinational corporations. Like a military dossier detailing the bombing of Dresden by Allied forces during World War II, this film manages its moral outrage with dark data that refutes the false flag of fiscal progress, which is waved mechanically and maniacally by the mainstream media across our syndicated smart screens. In line with the rise of workers' productivity since the 1960s, for instance, the minimum wage should be at least $20 an hour in the US. But it isn't, is it? Instead, it's a sinful and sickening $7.25 an hour. In turn, not only are 44% of 18 to 65-year-olds now classed as low-wage workers, 70% of all adults who work full-time have to suffer the humiliation and indignation of receiving government aid. So, where did all the money go? And what about all the hope? Well, coincidentally, in 1987, there were 47 billionaires in the United States with a total net worth of $186 billion. In 2024, however, we now have 759 billionaires with a combined wealth of, wait for it, $4.48 trillion. Such figures, to any rational mind, are absolutely ridiculous. It's as if we're playing a game of Monopoly in a locked room against Charles Manson, a machete in his right hand, a litre of tequila in his left. But such a subhuman socio-economic state of affairs didn't happen by accident, now did it? Amongst other things, Machiavellian men and women with incalculable capital, connections and control desired for it to be this way. They conspired for it to be this way and they contrived for it to be this way. But who was the original Zvengali, the David Koresh, the Colonel Kurtz that first let this Wall Street savagery loose upon the streets and suburbs of California, Texas, Washington and beyond? According to Kurt Anderson, author of Evil Geniuses and venture capitalist Nick Hanauer, Milton Friedman was an incredibly important figure. He was at the University of Chicago, where he was at the center of this group of libertarian economists, and they were really outside the mainstream. Personally, of course I would get rid of Social Security. I've always said it was one of the great miracles of Madison Avenue packaging. What would you do about the minimum wage law if you could? I would abolish it. And then in 1970, the New York Times Magazine invited him to essentially summarize his beliefs in an article that they called A Friedman Doctrine. Please welcome the Nobel laureate in economics, Milton Friedman. Right here. He was making the case that for businesses, nothing mattered but profits. Not the well-being of your employees, not the well-being of your communities, not the well-being of the larger society. All that mattered was your profits, period. 
he was making a claim about how human economies worked, that the more selfish business executives were, the better it would be for everyone. And that's what people bought. The trick in trickle-down economics is not believing that when the rich get richer, that's good for the economy. The evil part is the belief that when the poor get richer, that will harm the economy. And that has been the basic message of our nation's economic system for the last 40 years. But surely, we may rightly ask, there are robust constitutional and legal mechanisms in place which have been historically drawn up to prevent such wanton ransacking of the social contract between employers and their employees, citizens and their government. Well, unfortunately, Americond is quick to alert us that, in the United States of America, the land of free enterprise and brave opportunism, even democracy, is up for sale. So how do you change things permanently? Well, you change law. You change the way the judiciary interprets what is constitutional or not. A big way that changed is by billionaire right-wingers giving 50 million or 100 million each to all of the best law schools. And, oh, by the way, let's also start this fraternity, mafia, whatever you want to call it. So what exactly is the Federalist Society? The Federalist Society got started through law schools, and it's grown into an organization that has incredible influence in the United States. Getting conservative judges on the bench has been a project for multiple decades. Once you get both the law and Washington lawmakers, you could make sure that those laws were going to be declared constitutional or not by judges you essentially bred in your laboratory through the Federalist Society. Today, the Supreme Court of Chief Justice John Roberts declared that corporations had all the rights of people. What you have right now is the undermining of American democracy as we know it. There are now no checks on the ability of corporations to decide our elections. None. Although there are many heartbreaking and humanizing speeches and scenarios in Americond that any level-headed progressive would be engaged and enraged by, the documentary is not without its faults. For the sake of audience inclusion and narrative drive, for example, Jeff Bezos is crudely cast as an unobtainable online Ozymandias, while his Amazon workforce are portrayed as his eternally suffering Egyptian slaves. However, this popular approach overlooks the depth and breadth of the neoliberal tech feudalist system which now operates above, below and within all supposed civilised societies, not just the United States, and which, it could be argued, accidentally engineers egregious entities like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg. We're talking here about a supremely organised interconnected network of institutions whose hourly purpose is to maintain absolute power by generating trillions of dollars via the day-to-day -day exploitation of the world's 8 billion citizens. Indeed, this global complex of control is of such incomprehensible scope and strength it would take centuries of round-the-clock resistance from millions of focused, educated, dedicated and resourced activists to even begin to attempt to dismantle it, let alone hold it to account. Yep, we're talking here about actual international governments, their presidents, senators, prime ministers and members of parliament. Pharmaceutical companies like Ellie Lilly and Novo Nordisk that make our medicines energy companies like ExxonMobil and Shell that drive our cars, chemical companies like BASF and Cinepec that clean our floors, media companies like Disney and Comcast that entertain us, tech companies like Apple and Alphabet that detain us, arms manufacturers, the military, the CIA, MI5, FBI, the police, the prison service, all protecting their, not our, trillions upon trillions of dollars. This has been the UK Desk for Arts Express and I've been Brett Gregory. Cheers. An Americana is available to watch for free on YouTube. And we'll go out now with the Crime Scenes edition of Arts Express this week with two reports on the genocide in Gaza.
This is Bro on the Global Cultural Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, The Cowardly Invincibility of the Israeli Defense Forces. Throughout the region, we are often told there is fear and trembling at the might of the Israeli army, trained and supplied with advanced weaponry by the U.S. and aided by its mastery of technology, which furthers its superiority, also enabled by the equally feared Israeli intelligence service, the Mossad. Early triumphs in capturing part of the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, as well as the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, and the Golan Heights in the 1967 Six-Day War, as well as the Entebbe rescue mission in Uganda of hijacked passengers, and the bombing of Iraq and Lebanon established and then cemented this reputation. Along the way, there have been numerous accusations of war crimes, but these have generally been suppressed because in war, much like in sports, winning is everything, and how victory is achieved over who and why is often secondary to the victory itself. However, that reputation is now turning and in danger of being shattered completely. The turn began with Hezbollah driving the IDF forces from Lebanon in the 2006 conflict, continued with the Gazan attack on Israel on October 7 of last year, and has persisted because so far Palestinian fighters, through a series of underground tunnels, have evaded capture and death and continue to propose a negotiated settlement to the conflict despite Israel's scorched-earth policy above ground. The war, then, has mainly been waged not against a competing army, which is often nowhere to be found, but against civilians, with more than half of the over 27,000 dead women and children, and with over 100,000 dead and wounded. Besides nearly indiscriminate targeting of civilians, forbidden in the Geneva Convention, which Israel is a signatory of, there are documented instances of the IDF killing Palestinian forces, waving a white flag and asking to surrender, of them bombing refugee camps from the air, of using children as human shields to clear buildings in the Gaza Strip, of torturing prisoners and then claiming information produced by this torture is accurate, deliberately killing journalists, trying to report on the nature of the violence, as well as bombing hospitals and killing doctors, in one case targeting a retired doctor's home where refugees had fled for treatment. In addition, a doctrine shrouded in secrecy named the Hannibal Directive, named after the conqueror who took poison rather than be captured by the Romans and supposedly no longer in practice, allows for the killing of JDF forces rather than allowing them to be taken and held as hostages. Is the directive now applied to civilians as well? And was it used on October 7th in the Hamas attack, where it has been reported in Israeli media that Israeli tanks assaulted and helicopters bombed indiscriminately their own base and Israeli homes, resulting in some number of casualties? These questions have yet to be answered in full, but what is known in terms of the bloodthirsty assault following the attack is that JDF soldiers killed three escaped Israeli hostages, waving a white flag as they attempted to surrender to them. When actually engaged in armed conflict, the JDF record is not overwhelming. Multiple soldiers have been killed, so much so that in January, the Israeli government had to withdraw a battalion from Gaza for rest and recuperation. The JDF is a conscript army, and many of its members have been called back into active service after they had done their tour of duty and were contemplating a life of ease in Israel's still-thriving startup digital industry. A leader in surveillance technology, often pioneered by using Palestinians as guinea pigs to test and implement this spyware. There are also on the internet visual traces of how the hatred and devaluing of Palestinians forms a core part of the JDF. There's a heart-shattering video of one soldier who is about to blow up a building in a Gaza neighborhood, grinning and sending a selfie of him pushing the plug as we then witness the building being demolished in the distance. Elsewhere, a soldier dedicates blowing up another building to his daughter on her second birthday. And indeed, the war is not just a war of competing armies, but rather one where one culture is attempting to obliterate another, with the JDF not only raiding hospitals and in some cases shooting surgeons, with the excuse, often never proven, that there are Hamas tunnels underneath, but also in the blowing up of the universities, an attempt to destroy an avenue of advancement for future generations. The genocide is both physical and cultural. So the JDF... Pretty good at killing women, children, old men, doctors, surrendering prisoners, and their own hostages. Not so great at actual armed combat. 
The combined might of the Army, Navy, and Air Force in a last mission is now poised to essentially line up against the wall and mow down over 1.4 million largely defenseless Palestinians that have fled to what was promised to be the safe haven of Rafah. Will this, not band of brothers, but pack of cowards, be allowed to continue their mass civilian slaughter backed by the U.S., which refuses to halt the carnage? This is Bro on the Global Cultural Beat, Breaking Glass. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Some nights it's hard to sleep, and the past few months with the ongoing genocide of the Palestinian people by the Israeli Defense Forces and American bombs, it's almost impossible to sleep through the night. Of course, we're not fooled by any apologetics Joe Biden might have for his failure to stop the genocide. Last week, for the third time now, the U.S. vetoed a Security Council vote in favor of an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The deranged U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield, stated, quote, we will continue to actively engage in the hard work of direct diplomacy on the ground until we reach a final solution. Really? Until we reach a final solution? A final solution? Is the top diplomat in the U.S. so moronic and ignorant that she doesn't know that the words final solution were Hitler's phrase for the Nazi genocide? Or is it since Linda Thomas-Greenfield used to work for the law firm of Madeleine Albright, who famously said that the deaths of half a million Iraqi children was worth it, that Linda Thomas-Greenfield can't help but perk up when it comes to final solutions? Who are these Palestinian children? Thousands upon thousands upon thousands, many of whose crushed bodies still lie under the rubble. Maybe they're the lucky ones, luckier than the ones who survived with burns all over them, amputated limbs, with no parents left alive to find them food in a landscape of deliberate starvation. Al Jazeera News has printed on their websites the names of some of the Palestinian children murdered by the IDF since October, many murdered with the use of U.S. bombs. The children are listed by age of death. I kept focusing on the ones who had not even reached their first birthday. They are listed as zero years old. And the list goes on and on and on. In the time I have here, I can only read the names of some of those zero-year-old children. But here's a start. Abdel Kalek Fadi Khaled Al-Baba, zero years old. Abdel Rahim Ahmed Abdel Rahim Awad, zero years old. Abdel Rahman Abdel Islam Salah, zero years old. Abdel Rahman Samir Salama Saad, zero years old. Abdel Rauf Ibrahim Abdel Rauf Al Farah, zero years old. Abdul Karim Abdullah Omar Shahab, zero years old. Abdul Karim Kamel Zidani Al Hawarjri, zero years old. Abdullah Ahmed Kalia Zorab, zero years old. Abdullah Amir Abdullah Al Khor, zero years old all murdered by the Israeli Defense Forces and American bombs. Abdullah Mohammed Abdul Hamid Mohana, zero years old. Adam Magdi Jabbar Al-Dadu, zero years old. Adam Mohammed Fawad Al-Aga, zero years old. Adam Mohammed Samir Abu Ajwa, zero years old. Ahmed Maman Ahmed Dalul, zero years old. Ahmed Mohammed Amin Nofal, zero years old. Ahmed Mohammed Yasser Dadona, zero years old. Ahmed Saeed Ahmed Huda, zero years old. Ahmed Shadi Talal Al-Hadad, zero years old. Ahmed Talat Ali Barhum, zero years old. All murdered by the Israeli Defense Forces and American bombs. Aisha Jihad Jalal Shaheen, zero years old. Aliya Abdel Noor Sami Al Suri, zero years old. Alma Adnan Jamal Al Katrawi, zero years old. Alma Momen Mohammed Hamdan, zero years old.
and Makis Abdul Karim Al Zarani, zero years old. Alian Abdul Rahman Alian Al Ashkar, zero years old. Amel Mahmoud Mohammed Saliha, zero years old. Amel Muhammad Ahmed Al Bayuk, zero years old. Amir Mahmoud Zudi Al Masri, zero years old. Anas Abdul Aziz Mohammed Zahir, zero years old. All murdered by the Israeli Defense Forces and American bombs. Anas Abdullah Baha al-Din Sukayek, zero years old. Anas Tariq Mohammed al-Hassanat, zero years old. Anisa Mahmoud Ahmed Ali, zero years old. Anwar Mohammed Ahmed al-Hindi, zero years old. Asid Hussein Mohammed Abu Hamad, zero years old. Asil Amir Ali al-Ashi, zero years old. Asil Mohammed Jumad Dehir, zero years old. Awas Mohammed Hussein Al-Alil, zero years old. Ayat Abdul Aziz Omar Farwaneh, zero years old. Elaude Abdal Jawad Abu Ras, zero years old. All murdered by the Israeli Defense Forces and American bombs. Badr Yasser Rafiq Abu Habib, zero years old. Baha Mustafa Jamal Musa, zero years old. Bazil Mohammed Hossam Abu Jasser, zero years old. Bilal Khaled Mohammed Sob, zero years old. Bilal Mohammed Kamal Hamdan, zero years old. Selin Abdel Hadi Adel Daher, zero years old. Selin Ihab Eman Al Batiti, zero years old. Daughter of Dina Abdel Hakim Ayub Natat, zero years old. Daughter of Zainab Muhammad Al Abd Nawas, zero years old. Dia Ahmed Abdel Ati Salam Musa, zero years old. Dia Majed Ahmed Kishko, zero years old. All murdered by the Israeli Defense Forces and American bombs. Elena Momen Riyad Al Rifi, zero years old. Eliano Mohammed Nabil Mekhamer, zero years old. Ella Mohammed Salem Adrimli, zero years old. Esam Mohammed Esam Farag, zero years old. Etaf Hassan Riyad, zero years old. Ezet Asad Ezet Sak zero years old. Fadel Mesara Mohammed Abu Hasira, zero years old. Fad Uday Imad Alajez, zero years old. Farah Hamam Yusuf Bar, zero years old. Farah Hossam Abdel Karim Hanun, zero years old. Farah Suleiman Raed Abu Shahab, zero years old. All murdered by the Israeli Defense Forces and American bombs. Fatima Luay Rafiq Al Sultan, zero years old. Fatima Mowatasem Amin Nafal, zero years old. Fatima Mohammed Risk Alwawi, zero years old. Fatima Salah Yasser Al Hut, zero years old. Feruz Fadi Hamada Abu Salima, zero years old. Firas Mohammed Abdel Aziz Tamraz, zero years old. Khait Katab Omar Al Balul, zero years old. Khat Yasser Nabil Nofal, zero years old. Ghazal Asad Maher Abu Lashin, zero years old. Ghazal Mahmoud Saeed Al Haddad, zero years old. All murdered by the Israeli Defense Forces and American bombs. Hala Yasser Hamed Al Sanwar, zero years old. Hamza Mohammed Abdel Hamid Ashur, zero years old. Hassan Hamza Hassan Al-Amsi, zero years old. Hassan Mohammed Hassan Abu Dhaka, zero years old. Haya Sharif Bakar Al-Batnyaji, zero years old. Hind Khaled Ahmed Jaju, zero years old. Hoda Mustafa Hatem Abu Saif, zero years old. Hur Mohammed Ibrahim Al-Mamluk, 
zero years old. Hor Omar Mahmoud Al-Azeb, zero years old. Hor Ashad Said Habib, zero years old. All murdered by the Israeli Defense Forces and the American bombs. Hor Yassin Ahmed Sheikh Aled, zero years old. Ibrahim Ahmed Nasser Shakura, zero years old. Ibrahim Al-Muatasem Walid Al-Kuka, zero years old. Ibrahim Amar Saad Al-Kara, zero years old. Iman Mohammed Abdel Fattah Al-Hinawi, zero years old. Ismail Ahmed Ismail Farhat, zero years old. Isam Mahmoud Mohammed Karmut, zero years old. Iyad Abdel Rahman Jihad Mohelsen, zero years old. Jamal Mohammed Jamal Al-Magari, zero years old. Jana Hisham Mohammed Habuda, zero years old. All murdered by the Israeli Defense Forces and American bombs. I'm going to stop here. There are many, many more. I've been reading a list published by Al Jazeera News of some of the Palestinian children under one year old who since October have been murdered by the Israeli Defense Forces and U.S. bombs. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.